the last two weeks, I said I would give a quick update on our sabbatical, and I'll try to do that in such a way uh, where that segues then into uh, the sermon this morning, a new series, not a long series, uh, but a series called Why Bother with the Church, uh, which is a great question, probably a question many of you have asked or thought. Um, but before we get to that in, in, its, in its essence, um, I want to provide our church family an overview or the principle of sabbatical, maybe not my sabbatical in full detail, but a, but a definition and explanation of sabbatical in general as a way to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and caring, uh, primarily for your paid pastors, which Highlands does very well anyway. Um, but as if the Lord adds to this church and the staff grows, uh, how can we best care for those that are working full-time in that ministry of the Word and the ministry of people? Um, the way our bylaws are structured right now, uh, non-paid, non-staff elders uh, serve three years, have to be reaffirmed and put forward and re-voted upon uh, for another three years, and after those six years, two three-year terms, uh, take a year off. So really right now, the way the bylaws are designed provides for a natural rest for non-paid, non-staff elders. Uh, but that leaves then something to be done with the paid elders. Uh, Matt Schmucker from Nine Marks Ministry, a man I traveled with to Uganda for an expository preaching conference, said this, quote, the role of pastor-preacher, if done faithfully, is one of the most taxing jobs in the world. It demands so many skills, it's emotionally taxing, and it's both so regular that sermon is coming, and so variable, who can predict funerals, illnesses, or member crises. It's part of the work that a lot of people don't recognize. Your employment comes with specific, maybe unique stresses, uh, but as soon as the preacher delivers the burden of the Word, uh, it starts to build Sunday afternoon. It starts to really build on Monday when you're already your own worst self-critic on what you just preached the day before. There's a very human component to preaching for the preacher. It is done in a spiritual realm, but we are sinful men preaching to sinful people. Charles Jefferson, in his book, The Minister as Shepherd, said this, The shepherd's work is a humble work. Such it has been from the beginning, and such it must be to the end. It is a form of service which eats up a man's life. It makes a man old before his time. I mean, look at this. I'm 27, and look how I look. Every good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If a man is dependent on the applause of the crowd, he ought never to enter the ministry. The finest things a minister does are done out of sight and never get reported. They are known to himself and one or two others and to God. Congregations and, and elder teams ought to be aware of the fatigue that can set in uh, on the full-time paid ministers uh, and, and respond. Matt Schmucker continues. He says, one way to care for the pastor is by offering a planned and regular sabbatical. So what is a sabbatical? Because many of you have asked how our extended vacation went. Okay. And it is not synonymous with vacation. 
Uh, we are not referring to a biblical sabbatical year. For instance, we serve six years, we get a year off. But actually, no, that's not what we're talking about. There's a principle of sabbatical in there, but that's not exactly what we're talking about as Exodus and Deuteronomy talk about that. We are referring to the kind of sabbatical that is becoming more and more popular and used in our culture. For example, Oxford Lexico says it is a period of paid leave granted to a university teacher or other worker for study or travel. Or Merriam-Webster simply states a break or change from a normal routine as of employment. Or Dictionary.com states any extended period of leave from one's customary work, especially for rest, to acquire new skills or training. What a sabbatical does is it allows time for a pastor elder to step away from the busyness of ministry in order to gain clarity on the present and future, first, of his own life, and secondly, on the church's life. Here are some of the benefits this church afforded me during my recent, my only sabbatical in 27 years of ministry. We had two furloughs as missionaries, but those were the farthest thing from rest. We actually look forward to returning back to Africa to get to our home and our normal rhythms. This is the first in 27 years in full-time ministry, uh, the first sabbatical. By the way, I want, and I want to publicly thank our elder team for recognizing the need for a sabbatical, uh, for recognizing the fatigue that can set in, sometimes with that, uh, areas of just jadedness or cynicism or just a, a cooling heart. Right? Thankful for a team of elders where we are growing in our transparency with one another uh, and them recommending this. Uh, here, here are some of the benefits. Reading and studying Scripture without the burden of preaching Scripture. You have no idea how different that is. Uh, to be able to read through the Gospel of Luke and not have to think how I need to homiletically arrange this next section to preach. And what are the applications for highlands? And we try to do personal Bible reading in other areas that we're not preaching anyway. But the sabbatical really cleared the way for that to happen. Secondly, writing, disengaging from other aspects of ministry brought a fresh focus and creativity. And no, my book is not done yet. Okay, I'm going to just help clear the coffee connect time afterwards. Uh, third, mental rest. I remember my dad would work many, many hours as a land surveyor. He would work in the field and then, then he would come home and he would enter in all the computations uh, through his programs on the computer and by the time he came home, there was nothing. And if we took a two-week vacation, it took him about seven days to be ready to take a vacation. Some of you are familiar with that exact rhythm. I probably did not start to get mental and physical rest until three weeks into the eight weeks, granted. Like many doctors, a good pastor elder is on call 24-7. It's just the nature of pastoral ministry. You never turn it off. The elders in wisdom provided time for that to happen. They, matter of fact, they almost overly shielded me. I felt unwanted. Right? Like week four, I'm like, hmm, maybe I'm not needed anymore, right? Which is a whole other problem. Right? Um, but they did very well in protecting me. The church allows me three weeks of vacation each year, and we have tried to utilize that every year. But Matt Schmucker continues in his article, and he says this, sabbaticals are not vacations. 
We would encourage the pastor to see vacations as time completely away from his regular work and geography if financially affordable and with the focus aimed squarely on his family, which we did when we traveled to Costa Rica this year, and which I did when I went to Little Creek, Virginia to visit my son and to Brevard, North Carolina to visit my parents. We utilized our vacation time. But Matt continues and says, sabbaticals, on the other hand, are not work less and not aimed at the benefit of his family, though there was benefit for both my wife and I during this time. Uh, they are specifically aimed at reinvigorating and renewing the mind and heart of the pastor. Never have I before, in 27 years of ministry, been given a time of mental and physical rest like this church just gave me. So thank you. On behalf of my wife and myself, thank you very much. Um, perhaps my favorite thing about sabbatical uh, was visiting other churches. When you're in full-time ministry at a particular local flock, you're not afforded that opportunity. We went to six different local churches, large and small, progressive and conservative. Uh, it was an amazing and diversified experience. Um, some of the churches we left, and we tried not to be critical, we were always evaluating positively, but we went to worship with other believers. But it's hard not to then get in the car and start to evaluate. And on a few of these occasions, the question, why even bother with the church, comes to your mind. I like some things, just like people that come to Highlands, and I didn't like some things. I really didn't like the churches where everything seemed to be designed to execute a phenomenal performance. I didn't like not having to send, sing because I couldn't hear my own voice. I, I thought the little baby in front of us with his ear-canceling muffs on his head was a bit distracting. And I'm like, does anybody not think about just turning it down a little bit? Right? That was a... So there's things I like. Didn't, is that sinful? No, it's a wisdom decision. wouldn't say it's sinful. I preferred some churches more than others. I like the smaller personable ones, but I also understood the attractiveness of anonymity in a large church. I can go in, get my set of songs and sermon, and leave, and nobody talks to me. That's like a dream for an introvert. Or the other church where I felt like I was going into Disney and 33 people were staged to welcome me. By the time I got to my seat, I was exhausted. That's a nightmare for an introvert. I like some of the preaching, but not much of the preaching. I left spiritually hungry after most of it. I realized what a special medium-sized faith family we have. What God has done here, not just in the last 11 years, what God has done here uh, since this church has been meeting is unique in many ways. Why bother with the church, though? What do we even mean by church, right? Some of you were running late this morning trying to get to church. Some of you trying to get your one-year-old out the door were wondering, is it even worth bothering with the church? 
probably during the announcement, I could hear some of our teens say, oh no, another midweek gathering at church. That's my hardest day at school and I have so much to do the next day. And and I understand that. For others, it's Christendom. The church is the history of Christendom, including Constantinople or including the Crusades or an empire of Christianity, including an elite hierarchy of titles and robes and rites and rituals. And we go there to get all these things, to get confirmed, to get baptized, to observe the Eucharist. For some, it's a well-intentioned but misguided sentimental traditionalism that evokes so many childhood memories. Oh, remember the church. And as the world changes at at an unprecedented pace, we want one thing never to change. Our church. It's the one stable thing we can depend on that will never change. For others, it's an hour time slot loaded with a professional band, emotional prayers with background music, special effects including lights and screens worthy of an NFL stadium, and a highly engaging public speaker preacher who may only use the scripture as a springboard to say what he was going to say anyway, but that's okay because it was entertaining. When I ask why bother with the church, what are we talking about? It's a great question. Because regardless of how you define the church, it can be a hassle. Even when we get done defining it biblically, the church itself can be difficult and underwhelming and frustrating. And the reason why is, no matter how we look at it, it is imperfect and often on the surface disappointing. Even here at Highlands, we fail to execute well. We fail to cast clear vision. We don't always care well. We just don't. So why bother with the church? Historically, and, and very gifted atheist writers will, will be quick to point this out, historically the church has been brutal. That which called itself the church was oppressive. The early church in the scriptures seems weak. I mean, unless you're looking at some of the miracles in, Acts, in the book of Acts, it just seems weak and defeated. The seven churches in Revelation, minus one, all had problems that Jesus had to call them out for. It's a surprise to us that God did not instruct the believers at Corinth to go shopping for another church because the church at Corinth was an absolute mess. The church of Rome was a beast. The church of America may not be much better with its false gospel of entertainment and politics. So why bother with the church? It's a good question, isn't it? Why bother with the church when pastors disappoint? They do. I was disappointed by pastors during our sabbatical. I've disappointed. We disappoint each other. The elder team disappoints each other. Some members divide the elders into teams, the varsity team and the junior varsity team, and they're hurt if the junior varsity team shows up to visit them at the hospital. I disappoint. The others disappoint. We just do. So why bother with the church? The members are all hypocrites. You know what? You know why that argument works? (laughs) 
Because there's a kernel of truth in that. So why bother with the church if that's true? It's difficult to serve the affluent and entitled. Very few people are committed to serving every Sunday the rest of the flock. The affluent and entitled are used to being served. They expect good service. They will tip 20% or more for good service. They expect their medical professionals to produce, their legal representatives to win, their financial advisors to excel. They expect their fitness clubs, their restaurants, and their churches to provide incredible service or they will take their membership dues and go somewhere else. This can lead even good pastors to start asking themselves, why bother with the church? It's a good question. Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman said in their book, Rediscover Church, quote, you may have many reasons not to go to church. Indeed, many people stopped attending during the recent pandemic as much as one-third of churchgoers by some estimates. But I actually believe as having been a shepherd leader for more than 25 years in different aspects, I believe the pandemic merely revealed what was already in people's hearts. And it was an answer to the question, why bother with the church? And they answered it. And the pandemic just brought clarity to the answer they already arrived at. This morning, I want to present only one answer to that question. One answer Not a full, comprehensive answer. We're going to go to several different places in the Scriptures. But one answer to that question. In Bible interpretation, there is what is called the law of first mention. For example, when is is a name for God first mentioned in Scripture? It's actually a fascinating study. How the name of God is revealed and how it grows in its definition. And there are other names that are introduced to that. Or when is the term Messiah first used? Or when, what is the first reference to Christ's second coming? Right? If you start reading in Genesis to try to find out about Jesus' second coming, you're going to be reading for a very long time until you come to the first mention of the return of Jesus Christ. When are the Pharisees first identified? Right? Are they the good guys or the bad guys? And for our purposes this morning, when is the word church first mentioned? Please open your scriptures to Matthew 16. The word church is first found in the first New Testament book of your Bible, the Gospel of Matthew. It is first spoken by Jesus Christ himself. He uses the future tense in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church before the church was actually formed in Acts chapter 2. And what Jesus says about the church in this first mention is staggering. Jesus now has taken his disciples northward away from the predominantly Jewish territory down south. Look at verse 13, Matthew chapter 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? By the way, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself. It was not Son of God or King of Kings. It was Son of Man. 
Jesus is here with his disciples focusing on the perception of the crowds about his identity. But Jesus isn't that concerned about the perception of the crowds. What he really wants to know is what the disciples say about him. This is not for his own interest, but to correct his closest followers' impression. Look at verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist. Right? That's what Herod thought. This is John the Baptist come back from the dead. This is a problem because I had beheaded John. Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. No, do you, do you notice something about all those comparisons? These are rugged, godly men. These were men who were not fearful of other people. They were bold. They preached on righteousness. They preached on judgment. But do you know that good comparisons are still inadequate? Now, if we had a first time guest and they left and somebody said, well, your, your pastor preaches like John the Baptist. And if that got back to me, that'd be very encouraging. Or man, Steve's like Jeremiah. That'd be very encouraging. Right. And again, that comparison would not be uh, right, but it's not right here for Jesus either. But. On the other scale, because of who Jesus is, every good and complimentary comparison is inadequate. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to them, and this is this is the issue all along. But who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter, first one to respond, and this is going to be important for our understanding of the rest of this text. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. Now remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name or surname. It is a title. It is the New Testament word for the Old Testament Mashiach or Messiah. So what he is confessing is that you are the promised one, the deliverer that the Old Testament was looking forward to. Who do you say that I am? Peter, you are the Christ. The Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him in the form of a beatitude. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay? Peter didn't arrive at this by human deduction or by his own personal wisdom. Actually, the Father in heaven opened Peter's eyes to see who Jesus really is. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my, here it is, church. First mention. Jesus' declaration, you are Peter, parallels Peter's confession, you are the Christ. Do you see that? But who do you say that I'm? You are the Christ, okay? You are Peter. As if to say, since you can tell me who I am, I will tell you who you are. And I'll pronounce a blessing on that with you. The expression, this rock, most likely refers to Peter. Now, there have been a lot, there's been a lot of material written to sort of say that, that Jesus meant to look to himself and say, I am the rock upon this church because we don't like how in later church history that Peter was considered the first pope and we don't like all sort of that religious um, trash heap that is built upon that wrong teaching. But that's not on their radar here at all. You, you, you can't take history and read it back into the Scripture. 
The most natural reading of this text is he looks at Peter. You are Peter. Son of John. Christ, Son of God. You see the parallel. You're Petros, rock. And on you I'm going to build my church. Matthew 18.18 says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. As a matter of fact, in all the Gospels, the word church is only used three times, all in Matthew, one in Matthew 16, two in Matthew 18. So there's some, there's some layover. What Jesus is teaching is that the ultimate foundation for His disciples is a right confession of who Jesus Christ is. It actually echoes back to Jesus' earlier teaching in Matthew 7, where he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Of course, you know the story. The rain fell, beat upon that house, but it stood because it had been founded on a rock, simply a good foundation. 1 Corinthians 3.11, the Apostle Paul said to this very corrupt church, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In Matthew 16, Peter merely functions as a foundation rock representative of all the apostles, but also representative of all those who make a right profession of who Jesus Christ really is. Matter of fact, in Ephesians 2, verses 20 to 21, the scripture says this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, a community from diversity to unity. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Look at verse 18, Matthew chapter 16. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Or simply, my community. A community of followers. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, both the word ekklesia, which translates into church, and synagogue are taken from a Hebrew term referring to the community of Israel. Simply a community. A specific, clearly designated community. It could actually, in, in Greek, straightforward, refer to an army. Nothing about believers in it, but an army. Or, its, its most common usage was a citizen assembly. Let me read to you two places where the word ekklesia, the Greek word for church, is used in Acts 19 for a secular gathering. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly, ekklesia, was in confusion. <laughs> And most of them did not know why they had come together. Pity the church if that's the case for them. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. It's not talking about a local church here. It's simply talking about a, a group of gathered together people. The word ecclesia comes from two different words. Ek, out of, and kaleo, called. They are called out of, in this case, out of darkness into Christ's marvelous light. Out of error and into truth. 
Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And look what he says next. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is Jesus promising Peter in that statement? Well, first, Peter, based upon his profession, will be the foundation upon which Christ will build his church. He promises there will be an established, gathered community that he will build and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. I will build my community and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Literally, the gates of Hades. It's an expression that simply means the threshold of the realm of death or the powers of death. That's all that it means. It's interesting that after John saw the amazing vision of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1, John, who had walked with Jesus on the earth, did not expect Jesus to look like that in his glorified state. It says this in verse 17, When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I'm going to build a community of follower learners of those who follow me and worship me. And the gates of hell, the gates of death will not prevail against it. What Jesus is promising literally is the indestructibility of the church, which we're going to find out who and what that really is in future sermons. Why can't the gates of hell prevail against it? Right, and I've, I've heard this passage twisted and contorted to where the preacher is finally saying, I'm going to swing over hell on a cotton web with a squirt pistol in my hand. That's how confident he is that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. That's not what it means. The gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ's church because Jesus is its leader. He's the head of the body. And he died and he holds the keys to Hades and death. Keys lock things and open things. The gates of hell have no control over him because he rose from the grave conquering death. It's not about the personal courage of a preacher swinging over hell with a squirt pistol. It's about Jesus Christ, your Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God, who died and rose again, conquering death, so that this community can sing, Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? In the last two weeks, one of my students, one of my young Kenyan students that I trained in Zambia, died. Had a stroke. There were complications with COVID. They couldn't resuscitate him. They couldn't do the brain surgery on the blood clot that had formed and he died and he leaves behind a sweet wife named Precious and a little baby girl. But the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because Jesus Christ is alive. And we grieve. But we don't grieve like other people who have no hope. Because 1 Corinthians 15 says Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And if the church in Afghanistan is almost snuffed out entirely, the 
The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church because Jesus Christ is its head and He is the Son of God. And as we read this morning, He is the way, the truth, and the life, not death. Look at verse 19. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The one who holds the keys has authority. He may just be the key master, but he still has been entrusted with some kind of authority. Why Peter? Because Peter's the first one to say, no, you're more than John the Baptist. You're more than Jeremiah. You're more than some other prophet. You are the Messiah, God's Son. I'm going to give you the keys. Because that preaching, that profession, will now unlock the way to the kingdom of heaven. Peter's preaching in Acts opens up the kingdom doors for all who believe the right profession of Jesus Christ. Peter's right understanding of Jesus opens up the kingdom. Matter of fact, it's tied to this text in John chapter 20, verse 21, which displays a similar structure. Uh, John says this, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does that look like? If you came to me after the sermon this morning and you said, I believe Jesus Christ has forgiven me of my sin Because this morning, I put $5,000 in the offering plate. I will say, forgiveness is withheld from you. Because the keys say, salvation is the free gift of God's grace. If someone comes here this morning in a miserable, miserable, wretch, Because they've ruined their life. And they're overcome by regret, but they come and they bow down, or they don't bow down. They just come and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Will He forgive me of my sin if I simply ask and believe in Him? And the key unlocks that door. And it opens it. And I can give the assurance through the right profession of who Jesus Christ is that your sins are forgiven. On the other hand, Jesus said this to the lawyers. He uses the term keys of knowledge in Luke 11.52. Woe to you lawyers, a term for religious leaders, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered, hindered those who were entering. Israel's religious elite. We're shutting people out of the kingdom. It's what Matthew says in Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Do you know why? Because they said this, no to Jesus, no to God's son. Yes, our father is Abraham and Moses. We love the law. So we're going to trust in the law. And we're going to make others obey the law to get into heaven. And in essence, they just shut the kingdom of heaven on people's faces. 
Peter and everyone who says the right thing about Jesus hold the keys. That which locks and unlocks opens and closes. Do you know that the door of heaven is locked to Hindus? But can be unlocked through the preaching of the gospel. The door is closed to Muslims. But that latch can be opened through the right preaching of Jesus Christ. It's closed to atheists, Buddhists, Mormons, the list goes on. It's closed to believers who have made a profession in Jesus Christ plus traditionalism or plus something else. The door is locked, but it can be opened when you understand that the way of the cross is the free gift of God's grace. Verse 20, come to the end of our passage this morning. Then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Doesn't that seem a little odd? You know why? Even though their knowledge had grown and Peter makes the right confession, he's got a lot to learn. Peter's view of Jesus as Messiah was still inadequate. It would gain further depth as he goes on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. But even on the way down the mountain, Jesus says this again. Now, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Look down a few verses at Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each one, each person, according to what he has done. What Matthew is doing is he is tempering a theology of glory with a theology of the cross. And Peter still didn't understand that the way of the cross eventually leads to the way of glory, but it must come by the way of the Messiah's death. Peter didn't get that yet, but he will. And when he finally gets it, guess what Jesus tells Peter and the other disciples? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world and unlock the door of the kingdom by preaching rightly the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why bother with the church? First, the true church makes this essential confession. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. By the way, getting this message out is worth bothering with. Whatever else we might mean by why bother with the church, we can at least say getting that message out, the right estimation and profession of Jesus Christ is worth bothering with. Second, our true church has a founder. It's not a gifted evangelist or a lifelong missionary or a brilliant intellect pastor. It's Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the cornerstone. So worship of the Son of God, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and the head of the church, is worth bothering with. The true church has a foundation. Peter, as representative of, and leader of the apostles, because of what he says about Jesus Christ, and he says the same thing Jesus says in Mark 1, 14 to 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that message needs to get out. And that's worth bothering with. And finally, the church is unconquerable. Just listen to this statement. The gates of hell, the threshold of death, will not prevail against my church, Jesus said. And God has designed His church to be unique. As 1 Timothy 3.15 says, 
This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And there are people living in the shadows of death. There are people that are weary and there are people that are tormented and they need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and that is worth bothering with. Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman said in their book, quote, God does not invite us to church because it's a comfortable place to find a bit of spiritual encouragement. No, he invites us into a spiritual family of misfits and outcasts. He welcomes us into a home that's rarely what we want, yet just what we need. Let's pray.